Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. More than two months after Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine, the war has now entered a second phase with the two sides facing off in Ukraine's eastern region. While some observers have previously hoped that peace talks might prove successful, this optimism has largely faded as it has become clearer that Russian President Vladimir Putin is intent on seizing Ukrainian territory on the battlefield. Following the Ukrainian military's successful effort to hold off Russia's attempts to take Kiev during the first phase of the war, Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky is now continuing to urge the West to provide support, including both weapons deliveries and diplomatic engagement. Looking forward, it still remains unclear how the conflict will evolve as well as how it could eventually come to an end, given the numerous difficulties that stand in the way of achieving any sort of negotiated settlement. Um, To discuss key developments and the future trajectory of the conflict, we're really happy to have back on the podcast, um, Mike Kaufman and Jeff Edmonds. Um, Guys, welcome back. Great, thanks for having us. Um, Quick bios, Mike is the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA, as well as an adjunct fellow at CNES, and Jeff Edmonds is senior research scientist with CNA's Russia Studies program and also adjunct senior fellow at CNES. All right, Mike, um, give us an update on where things stand on the battlefield. Phase two of this war is kicked off, um, and so what do things look like? So I think as a short summary, we're definitely probably about a, a few days or week into this uh, Russian offensive in around the Donbass. Um, what we're probably seeing is a host of uh, main force attacks, some attacks that are reconnaissance and force, and some attacks that are fixing attacks by Russian forces all the way across Zaporizhia, along the initial line of contact near Donetsk. And the main effort is focusing on the sort of northern part of the Donbass, a salient around Severodonetsk, which is in the Luhansk Republic, where Russian forces are trying to create a pocket and envelopment there by pressing both uh, south and west of Severodonetsk. And a second sort of pocket, let's put it this way, that they're trying to create um, around Slavyansk and Krematorsk. Their main line of effort there is largely from Izum, and they're trying to push directly south from Izum towards Slavyansk. They're trying to push southwest from Izum towards this kind of town called Varinkova, which is essentially an effort to create a partial envelopment around Slavyansk and Krematorsk, pushing to the west of them, and also you know the rail runs to Varinkova. So they're trying to cut the ground line of communication supply to Ukrainian forces there. Uh, they've, on the whole, there's a few areas where they've made progress. They've taken towns. There's some areas where Ukrainians have conducted a tactical retreat to consolidate positions. And there's other areas where Russian forces have conducted sort of frontal attacks without much success in, in what they were able to achieve. And uh, it's, it's obviously hard to tell across the entire line of of about of what's taking place everywhere. But in the South, they have shifted units from Mariupol in order to conduct what seemed to be a host of fixing attacks coming out of Zaporizhia, basically pressing north. So, so you have a battlefield that's pretty large, actually. You have a concentration, maybe 25 battalion tactical groups from the north around the Zoom and east of Azum by Liman trying to push south 
towards Ukrainian forces. You have units trying to come straight out of Donetsk, the part of the Donbass that you know Russian forces have occupied since 2014. And you have pressing attacks coming out from the south. Um, and you also have Ukrainian counterattacks to prevent Russian breakthrough and to try to pressure the, the logistics. Uh, you have Ukrainians trying to push out from Kharkiv to try to threaten the kind of logistics coming from Russia into Zoom. Are you surprised um, by how little progress Russia has made this time around? No, not initially. I mean, this is just the first week and their, their force composition substantially uh, kind of, it's a bit more of a Frankenstein force because they have to put you know unit fragments together. They've thrown reinforcements into the fight. So they're probably pursuing this much more cautiously. I suspect they're trying to preserve as much of the force as they can. Um, I am not surprised that they haven't made any kind of tremendous breakthroughs because they are still actually reinforcing the units they are going to be using in this fight. I think they're probably, if anything, pushing a bit early. They started the offensive a bit too early, given all the attrition they suffered in the force. They need to replenish and reorganize. And my best bet is they did that because. They saw Ukrainians reinforcing along interior lines, and they knew that the longer they wait, the stronger the Ukrainian position gets, right? Ground warfare favors the defender, just generally. And, and so the correlation would have, would have actually even become worse, even less favorable to them if they had waited, you know, some maybe a couple more weeks to build up even more and to stabilize their units. Do you think any of, sorry, one last question, Mike, and then Jeff, I've got one for you, but in terms of um, starting sooner maybe than they were ready, was any of that like politically motivated in terms of political pressure? We've heard a lot about this May 9th date. Um, do you think that, that there's any truth to that or is it really just kind of more of a military calculation? No, it's military calculation. I mean, nothing's gonna happen by May 9th. And if you just look at the reality of this war, um, the part of uh, this region they're fighting is a semi-urban region. I mean, these are cities they have to take. And it wasn't going to happen fast. And personally, to me, the May 9th wasn't very deterministic because, okay, they don't achieve these objectives by May 9th. What happens then? Absolutely nothing. They, the, the war keeps going. So uh, I think if, any, if, if Putin needs a political victory, he'll probably use Mariupol as the victory for May 9th and point to that and say, there, we've liberated Mariupol. Um, and we've so quote unquote crushed Nazism in in uh, in Ukraine at Donbass, and, and that'll probably be his argument. Or you know, he could announce something else because you know I personally suspect that now the game plan is to turn Kherson and a part of Zaporizhia they control into some kind of people's republics and to maybe annex the Donbass outright based on whatever they're they're able to get there and just try to politically take it off the board. Yeah, referenda is on my question, so let's come back to that. Um, but Jeff, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting to see a change in is U.S. rhetoric, right? In just the last week, there's been a lot more optimism by senior U.S. officials and European officials about Ukraine's ability to actually win the war. Um, and so, where do where do you think that's coming from? So I do think it's coming from the fact that you know politically the Ukrainians have won. Um, the tactics, you know, the, the support that we've been giving them has, has clearly been, been quite effective. They've been effective themselves. Also with this, you know, new revelatory reporting that of the level of intelligence we've been providing. And so I think there's just a lot of optimism behind the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are, 
And to the to that point, I mean, the Ukrainians are are coming off of a victory. They've got high morale. And on the other side, despite you know the the picture is operationally simpler, and perhaps you know it, it's a better position for the Russians than they were in before. The Russians are having to cobble together a, a force that's been pretty bloody with low, you know probably low morale with disparate units. You know the the new general there, General Dvornikov, is going to have to piece together these units and kind of create a, a cohesive operational whole. And so it's not clear at all. I mean, at least just in, this is just my opinion. It's not clear at all that that the Russian forces um, in the coming months, weeks, and months ahead can actually achieve even the revised um, goals that that Putin has, has clearly laid out. So that's what I, I want to dig into that a little bit. So it seems like a lot of this next phase of the war is going to be contingent on Russia's ability to address the problems that it suffered in phase one. Some of the most obvious are problems with logistics, some with communications, morale. Um, can you, I don't know if you want to like pull apart, pull those problems apart a little bit or 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 at least kind of talk about um, your sense of how how they might be able to address those problems, whether it's feasible that they can. Um, you know, the other thing that people make a big deal out of is that, you know, the, the geography of the East um, is perhaps a little bit more favorable to Russian forces than the first phase. So I don't know, when you kind of think about Russia's ability to turn the page and do a bit better in the second half, or I mean, not even second half, second phase of this conflict, um, what do you think are the prospects that they can do that? Yeah, so quickly on, you know, just the geography and the nature of the of the operational environment in the East. I mean, for the Russians, it simplifies their logistics because they're more secure and they're shorter back to Russia. Um, it's a smaller geographic continue, contiguous space within which you can concentrate more combat power. And three, like I said, with the Dvornikov, you have a, a, a more robust, simplified command and control structure, which should lead to more effective operations. As to the terrain, there's been this tendency to have this 180 degree approach to the east that you know we were knee deep in the Russians were knee deep in urban fighting in Kiev and then all of a sudden they're in wide open you know fields of wheat in 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 the far east and that's really not the case when you look at most of the fighting outside Kiev most of it is what we would kind of consider suburban areas it wasn't as if they were fighting in something like downtown Baghdad going you know from building to building um, as mu as much and in the east it's not as if these are just wide open fields there's a lot of built up areas it's spring, and so you have a lot of foliage. You have increased concentration. You have in increased um, foliage, which gives you greater uh, concealment. And so it's not a. I don't want to make it sound like 180 80 degrees. This has not been my day. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, let me ask. Uh, in terms of the um, the supply lines, I can't. I think a lot of a lot of folks are waiting to see if the Russians are going to begin focusing on really trying to uh, intercept or uh, or target all this all this resupply coming in you know they, they take pot shots every now and then and lots of warnings but it doesn't seem to be an intense focus on really trying to cut the supply lines coming out of Poland and, and other places do you all see that that might become a, a factor later on or is this really a, a measure of not controlling the airspace or uh, something along those lines. Well, do, you, do you think we're going to start seeing more targeting? This is inside of Ukraine, hopefully not in Poland or elsewhere. Yeah, I definitely think so. So um, I, I had commented a number of times that one of the mysteries of this war was why Russia had not targeted ground lines of communications, namely bridges and rail bridges into the Donbass. They can't really interdict the flow of weapons from the United States, not in a meaningful way. 
recently, they've conducted strikes against a whole number of sort of rail stations, which, which will probably slow down the flow. Um, and the only rail bridge really seen them hit is one down by Odessa, which kind of in the opposite direction. And, and still, they haven't gotten after bridges into the Donbass, which is where this operation is taking place. So my best guess is, yes, they will finally start to go after this. Why they haven't thus far is a mystery, and eventually we'll find out because it's one of the more puzzling aspects to it. Overall, though, you can bring a lot of this material not by train, but by truck and other things, and they don't have any effective way of interdicting the flow from, from Europe, from Poland. They just don't. And those threats are, to be honest, those threats are empty threats. Like Russia has no capacity to really interdict this flow, and they can invest slowing down by going after things like the rail network, but there's a, that's, that's not, that's not going to actually stop it. So Jeff, you mentioned Bornikov, um, you know, and uh, when he was init initially announced as the new commander, there was kind of a big to do about, oh, you know, he's the butcher of Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Can, can you talk a little bit about your views on Bornikov and whether that is likely to usher in any significant change? And again, just back to this question of, to what extent will he be able to address any of the problems that Russia saw in the first phase? Sure. So, yeah, there was a lot of talk about him being the butcher of Syria, but I guess what a lot of people didn't realize is he was just but, but just one commander that rotated through Syria. And insofar as Russian tactics in Syria and Aleppo were uh, barbarous and were, you know, if they were all butchers, that's probably that's true. But I don't want to give everybody else that was a commander in Syria, you know, a break simply because Dvornikov is, is identified as this, as this one guy. So I, I think it's much more a symptom of how Russians have gone about, the Russian military has gone about, um, you know, attacking cities more than it is just one person that, that, that's, a, that's a butcher. But I mean, he does have considerable military experience. But again, the real challenge, I think, for him is going to be the, in my opinion, the morale issue. Um, the shock that Russian troops probably experienced in the opening week, the, the shock and the, the level of casualties they experienced in the opening weeks is very hard to recover from by, you know, immediately. Taking a little operational pause while you reposition troops is probably not enough. It's, it's definitely not enough to address that. And so I think that's his biggest challenge going forward. But as I said, operationally, this do, does simplify Russian operations and enable them to more concentrate combat power going forward. So if we assume, which it sounds like we all do, that Russia is going to have problems addressing the shortcomings, that none of the things that you guys are talking about are quick fixes, they're deeper structural problems that can't be easily rectified, then kind of when you look forward at the trajectory of the conflict, how do you see things likely to go? And why, right, we can get into a little bit of a scenarios conversation, but kind of in the coming months, um, how much success do you think Russia will have in taking and holding territory? Um, what are the prospects for an end to the conflict? Do we agree that this is, you know, an extremely prolonged kind of thing? I don't know, maybe Mike, start with you and just in the sense of like, how, how is Russia going to do in the coming months? And the flip side of that, how well will, how well will Ukraine do? And I know you don't know, I can see you're, you're shaking your head at me. None of us know, but put on your icy hat with me and Jeff, and let's think through some scenarios um, to, to try to understand, you know, how this might evolve, uh, recognizing high uncertainty. You can't predict how a series of battles are going to play out. So that's kind of a fool's errand in my view. I think the the best you can do is basically say, all right, 
what does this war look like some months from now? So I think we can say confidently that this is going to be Russia's last offensive because they're going to be exhausted as a force no matter how it plays out. I think we can also say confidently that Ukraine continues to generate additional forces. So the overall trend in the balance of military power under these conditions is shifting towards Ukraine. Ukraine has counteroffensive options, but they're also possibly limited because they come with they come with risks, and then the costs will mount to Ukraine as well. The goal of Ukrainian military leadership seems to have been to preserve the force as much as they can, assuming this might be a long war that will drag on. Since Ukraine is being equipped by the United States, it can turn the manpower into additional brigades. The more it does that, the more the military balance favors Ukraine. Russia is trying to fight the war with peacetime manning levels, and a lot of its current standing force is spent. This means that without national mobilization, without declaring a general state of war, Russia doesn't really have good options in this conflict moving forward. Trying to piecemeal raise manning will get us some additional units over time, but it's just completely unrealistic for Russia to fight this war with Ukraine at this state. It just isn't. Uh, so those are political choices that hang over this conflict. Uh, Ukraine also has political choices to make. After the Donbass, they can go on the offensive. How much they go on the offensive and what they go for is very much up to them. Could have implications, naturally, for how, uh, for how Moscow reacts. Um, there are a lot of mysteries. You know, there are mysteries on our sides, Andrea. Like, if you ask political leaders, what, how do they define victory in Ukraine or what does success look like? That's uh, it's probably an unwelcome question, actually, in some circles. I'm not sure, I'm not sure we necessarily have that figured out. But um, the, the war doesn't necessarily turn into a stalemate. Like, Ukraine doesn't have to accept the stalemate after this offensive. Russia doesn't have to accept that they're going to keep fighting Ukraine uh, with this uh, badly mauled force either. They can also change the terms to some extent. If they conduct national mobilization, then all bets are off kind of on the future of this conflict, right? They could go, I mean, it, it, will, it could then become a lot uglier and nastier. So um, long story short, at least in my view, there's no impetus for political settlement now. Russia gave up most of its le uh, leverage when they retreated from the Kiev region and were defeated in the north. I don't see prospects for ceasefire anytime soon. Um, I don't have any thoughts on the likelihood of Russian success in Donbass. It could go a number of ways. And I just don't see further offenses as realistic for the Russian military. On, uh, in the state after after the Donbass. Jim, I know you want to jump in, but I like your, Mike, this framing of choices because I think it's a useful way to think about it. And I like I think I heard three choices, but maybe there's more. But one for Russia, mobilize or no mobilization. There, another choice is like, do they kind of get into a stalemate and continue to kind of grind through the conflict? And then another, but another choice I think you didn't talk about is escalation and like the choice to use chemical, cyber, or even tactical nuclear weapons. To me, like those are some of the choices. Um, and Jeff, I don't know, do you want to weigh 
in on any of those, like A, like do, what, what are the prospects that we could see a mass mobilization inside Russia? It's like, you know, politically risky strategy. Um, and then I do wanna talk about this potential for escalation because I think as the three of us have talked about quite a lot, um, the scenario in which Russia risks um, not taking any additional territory that they didn't have prior to the 23rd or, or, or you know, just something that looks a lot like a significant military loss in Ukraine is a pretty risky scenario in the sense that, you know, defeat maybe is not a choice for Putin, that this is an existential crisis and that in that scenario, the risk of escalation seems highest. But, but anyway, maybe Jeff, maybe start with the mobilization piece and to what, it, you know, do you think that that's something that Putin would be willing to do? I do. I mean, in the end, if, if you know, near to midterm military objectives aren't met, and especially if he's pushed back against the wall, then I certainly think he would. And you had mentioned May 9th earlier. I was thinking earlier about, and I totally agree with Mike, that there's not a whole bunch of military significance around May 9th. There's not going to be any big deliverables. But what it might give him to, the ability to do is really start to set kind of the, the, the foundation amongst the population and kind of mentally prepare the population for or emotionally prepare for a possibility of a national call up. And so I think there's going to be a lot of talk about, you know, this is not about Ukraine. This is about Russia versus the West. This would get a lot worse. You know, the, they're not going to relent. They're not going to give up. And so we need to be prepared to take the actions necessary to preserve, you know, Russian sovereignty. And so I think that's one thing you can see out, out, of, the, out of the ninth. But what are the risks of mobilization? I mean, maybe they're obvious, but just kind of talk a little bit about then. If he goes down that path, what are the risks for Putin then? Well, if it's not couched correctly and it's not, if the population isn't prepared for it and willing to support it, then it suddenly looks like a move of desperation on his part. Like why, if you just had a, how does a special operation um, that's supposed to last a couple of days turn into something that that is mobilizing the entire country and it's not just as if you can mobilize them and just throw them into the conflict. I mean, you can, but generally there's training involved. This means a much longer conflict. And so politically, it just really, it, it in, in some ways can bring out the fact that this was such a poorly executed special operations. I mean, the, the big question out of that is, you know, if you know, given the way you did this, why, and you achieved your uh, initial objectives, why do we need to do this? Like what, what's, who's to blame for this? And then, I mean, don't you think it even raises the stakes even further, I guess, if even if you could, that then if you have a public that's invested in the war, then how can you lose? How can you walk away right, with that? I, I don't think it can. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, don't, I think that would be disastrous. And I think that he's willing to go to great lengths to avoid that. And I've said that before, that if it really comes down to, you know, this kind of, and people use strategic loss or different ways to describe it, but if he's really losing big, right? Um, I, I do think there, there's a chance he could escalate this into something that's beyond uh, NATO into like, you know, Mike and I joke around about this, but you know, escalating this into a Russia-Ukrainian, a, a Russia-NATO war um, with the whole signal that, hey, you guys need to stop supplying Ukraine weapons, force the Ukrainians to the table, take off some of the economic pressure, or you're going to get a Russia-NATO war with all of the, the, the nuclear ramifications that, that comes with. I still think that's a, a, a very possible scenario that we could face. Well, talk, Mike, talk a little bit about kind of the nuclear rhetoric, the nuclear saber rattling. What does it mean? What do we expect? I mean, it's obviously been present throughout the war. At the beginning of the war, they put their forces, their nuclear forces on high readiness. Last week, they just tested that Sarmat Satan II nuclear missile. And then you have these kind of repeated 
reminders. I guess the most recent was this week with Lavrov talking about the great risks of a nuclear confrontation. Kind of how do you read those? Um, and do you actually, how, how would you describe the risk of Russia using some sort of nuclear weapon in Ukraine? In Ukraine, I want to say in Ukraine. I, mean, I personally don't see it as very high. The reason I don't raise these escalation scenarios is because I just don't see them very likely. I don't see what they're going to do for Russia. I uh, don't believe not only in their efficacy, but in the likelihood that Russia is going to employ these weapons in that way. I think the problem with Russian nuclear rhetoric is first, they saber rattle too much and people become inured by it. Uh, second, there's, from what U.S. officials say regularly, and I obviously don't know, but from what U.S. officials say, there's no observable change in Russian nuclear forces posture. So the changes aren't there to match the rhetoric. So the rhetoric over time looks like somebody just saber rattling and bluffing. Okay. Now, this takes us down a dangerous path because eventually, potentially, the Russian military will be off in a very bad way. Um, Vladimir Putin will believe that none of his coercive threats worked and weren't listened to for good reason, because they weren't going to. And then at the very least, we'll see a nuclear weapon employed for demonstration purposes. And before you ask, what does that mean? It means not against a target in Ukraine, but let's say over a sea, an ocean, in the air, someplace where it doesn't actually destroy anything. But the nuclear weapon employment, the let's say like a test, is significant, right? It it begins it begins to drive a conversation, and maybe that won't change anything, right? The United States could say, okay, well, you conducted the nuclear test, and so what? You know, um, I dare you to to actually think about using a nuclear weapon if you think that's going to achieve something for you. But that's that's a direction that this conflict could go into. I wouldn't call it a high probability chance, but. It's definitely the highest probability chance I've seen of something like that happening uh, in many decades. That's for sure. Uh, let's put it this way. It, it, it's a low probability chance that's uncomfortably high for folks like me and Jeff who look at the is issues of nuclear escalation. Yeah. So, and, and so, I mean, especially the demonstration or something like that, what would be the reasons that Russia uses it? I mean, I mean, A, to try to I mean, Mike, you were just talking about how the balance of power is shifting to Ukraine, especially as weapons continue to flow in. So might Russia use the demonstration to try to get put an end to the endless supply of arms that they see coming in from the United States and Europe um, to kind of say back off? This has to end or I mean, or to what extent could it help distract a Russian public you know, from looking weak in Ukraine or either? I mean, I guess, I guess my question is what what would what would what would be the reason of using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine? We would make follow-on coercive threats more efficacious and credible. Because once you begin crossing the perception of taboos, such as test bans on nu nuclear weapons and the like, right? Then your other threats regarding potential escalation begin to appear more credible. They'd be willing to break with other taboos. That's what. Uh, well, th thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone. That, that was a great discussion. <laughs> I, I feel terrible. Uh, breaking in, I, I feel I should just sit here with everybody, all the other listeners. Uh, but uh, but but I do need to say something, I guess. So, uh, Jeff, if I could just go back to your point about um, if there was an escalation where uh, the Russians said, "Look, we're going to turn this from a Russia-Ukraine into a Russia-NATO thing because of uh, you've been resupplying 
them with these increasingly sophisticated weapons. We've warned you. Um, this is this is a war between Russia and the West with Ukraine as the proxy. Uh, therefore, we're going to now turn our sights onto NATO. So what does that look like? I mean, you know, it, some people would say, well, that's absolutely suicidal. The Russians can barely handle a deal with Ukraine, and now they're going to take on all of NATO. And what, what do they do? Invade Estonia? Do they launch? They go nuclear uh, uh, immediately. There's not even a conventional side. They just go nuclear. And it's at the strategic. I mean, what, what would that look like if, if they said, well, look, uh, we're going to we're going to turn this into Russia versus the West. We're going to have this mobilization uh, and you're going to pay a big price West for what you've done. Right. So yeah, great, great point of clarification. I don't think it would not be to invade, you know, some kind of piece of NATO territory or to launch onto some long conventional war with NATO. I mean, that's clearly based on what we said earlier, that's just not possible. It would be a signal. I mean, it would, in many ways, the same kind of signal that Mike was talking about with the potential demonstration of nuclear weapons. And to Mike's point earlier, you know, you, these are incredibly difficult to predict, but it's just different pathways that we try to explore just so we're not completely surprised going forward. Um, I mean, I would think it would be something like you could, you could, you know, if you're Russia, you could strike something inside Poland, you know, something that was a, a you figured was a depot for weapons going into Ukraine. And then that just really triggers an Article Five, and then you get you know an intensification of the. It's a way of, in some ways, of intensifying the rhetoric around nuclear weapons. Because, I mean, th this is true always. Whenever Russia talks about the possibility of a of a war between Russia and NATO, nuclear weapons always rear their head, right? And so, in a, in a way, this is is is, in, is to intensify that. Um, where it goes from there is hard hard to say. I just see it as one way of, out of desperation trying to, to call our bluff and get us to back down. And again, yeah. the probability of that happening, I mean, who knows where, where this, this thing goes from here. It's impossible, again, to Mike's point, it's impossible to tell where the, the ground force battle, you know, where the ground battle goes and then where escalation dynamics take us from there. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's, that's interesting. I, I, uh, yes, yep, uh, go ahead, Mike. Let me just play out briefly a very dark decision-making tree, right? There's Russian nuclear employment for demonstration purposes. There's a threat against the Ukrainian counteroffensive if Ukrainians are doing very well, backed by U.S. weapons, whatnot, they're winning, okay? And a demand that if Ukrainians don't stop and negotiate a ceasefire, the next nuclear weapon will be used against their forces and country, all right? Then it's a real challenge of what is Ukraine going to do? The United States did not extend any nuclear deterrence to Ukraine. There's no, no nuclear guarantees for them, right? Not separately. They are not NATO. Um, and nobody believes the United States is going to fight nuclear war on behalf of Ukraine, right? Right. So now, from using that weapon for demonstration purposes, you could see that a, you know, an attempted coercion, an ultimatum issue to Ukraine follow-on could have some efficacy on Ukrainian political leadership. We certainly give them a lot to think about. So you could basically, I'm just giving you kind of one scenario where you sort of ask, well, what would be the point of using nuclear weapons for demonstration purposes? And I'm just trying to lay it out. I, I obviously don't know. As I always say, anybody who tells you they know what Vladimir Putin's thinking is probably trying to sell you something. Here's another one that we don't know. Moldova, what, what's going on in Moldova? Mike. 
Wait, I have to go first? Just so you know, I'm not the, le the leading Moldova expert in, in this discussion or in any discussion. That I've Break been, down Transnistrian politics for us and tell us what's happening. I'm not an expert on Transnistria either, although that's one of the uh, kind of more classical frozen conflicts and unrecognized states, the sort of territory that's existed uh, out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, maybe just a brief summary. First, I don't know what's going on there, okay? Second, I can describe the situation this way. Um, since the Russian military intervention in the conflict in Transnistria, today there's around 1,500 Russian troops in Transnistria. The efficacy of those troops is really about two battalions on lightly thin armored vehicles that are ancient with no offensive potential. So I should want to make that clear. There's no real chance of a Russian military invasion from Transnistria anywhere because that force's offensive potential is close to nil. That's actually more like nil. All right, that's, that's as far as I can describe the military situation. It felt like there was something strikes against maybe ammo depots there. I don't know, maybe Ukrainians are striking Russian ammo depots in Transnistria. I have no idea. I'm just, I'm literally just um, throwing darts at the board here because this is a developing story just started. Some things that Russia is now trying to play games in Moldova politically. Maybe so, but why? What is it going to get Russia? It's just only going to backfire even further. That's not to say it's not stupid and they wouldn't do it. I've definitely seen them doing an incredible amount of stupid things in uh, the last two months. So it, um, it, it would be consistent with their decision making. But the, that being said, I don't understand what is was actually going on right now. Why would Russia hope to gain anything by trying to escalate that situation? They are in no position to come to the reinforcement of their units in Transnistria. That's the one thing I will say, right? Like they're actually their forces there are kind of I said cut off. I don't know. Jeff, maybe you can add some thoughts to to mine uh my unsatisfactory answer. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I agree with you, Mike. I mean, we we generally don't know if I had to break it down into two different possibilities off just off the top of my head it's like one is this is some rogue group that that has some dream of russia coming to their aid or or moving in transnistria to mike's point that's obviously not going to happen they they are barely holding on as it is the second one if it if it, let's say it was russia doing something stupid or or trying to do something i would think that all it would be would would be you know kind of a minor signal like hey this has Kind of, kind of bolstering that idea that hey, this thing can get out of control. This thing can expand. It's just adding one more bit of noise to this growing cacophony of of warnings about about where this conflict could go. But again, I don't think we we really know anything at this point. Well, let, let's let's move a little bit further down into the Black Sea and just look at the naval side, which there's not a lot to talk about since the Moskva went down. Uh, ships have been staying off pretty far offshore, as we know. Um, their role seems to be popping a uh, caliber cruise missile into, um, you know, into the into their part of the of that so-called land bridge. Um, is there? It, 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 supposedly, there's an LST out there that's got naval infantry on it too. Uh, those poor guys have been on that ship for a long time. If it's still there, <coughs> or if it's you know, maybe it's been pier side for a while too. I don't know, but so what's happening with that naval, that Black Sea naval presence? What are they, what are they doing, and and can we expect to see them uh, pop up at any at any point? Um, first, 
Russian forces got off the LSDs a couple of weeks into this war, and there's been no prospect of an amphibious landing uh, since then. They did a small unopposed landing not far from Mariupol with a couple of LSDs, and that's the only real amphibious operation in this war. Uh, Russian forces are effecting a blockade, maybe an outer blockade of uh, that part of the Black Sea. They don't need service combatants to do it. There's lots of ways they could do it, but the main important part here is that they're they're blocking the uh, commercial traffic to Ukraine's main port of Odessa. Uh, they also have a second blockade on the Dnieper River, which is a significant commercial waterway in Ukraine because they control Kherson. Um, that blockade can't be lifted. It's not going to be lifted by a destruction of the Moskva. Moskva is a significant political victory in Ukraine, but operationally, it's not very significant for this conflict. Um, it just doesn't change much of anything in the Black Sea for Ukrainians. It's, just, it's a big public success because Moskva was the flagship of the Black Sea fleet, even though she was a, it was a very old Soviet cruiser that probably was well overdue for retirement, but nonetheless. Um, beyond that, uh, the Black Sea, you know, it, it, there are some signs of Russian naval movement activity. It's not necessarily clear what they're up to, to be perfectly honest. I suspect that since the strike on the Moskva, they now have to reassess the fact that Ukraine has some anti-ship capability and can build additional Neptune missiles. I think it's fair to surmise that, the, that the, here's what happened in the first two months. The Russian Navy assumed Ukraine had no anti-ship missiles. The reason they assumed that is because they weren't rated to have initial operating capability and they hadn't fired any. So after a month of Ukraine not firing any missiles at them, right, they, like, they probably figured that they were safe. Ukrainians made some missiles during this time period, right? Then they fired the missiles they had. Now the Russian Navy probably doesn't know if Ukraine has or can make more. So now they're going to change their deployment. They're probably going to shift more to an outer blockade and be more cautious. I suspect it will affect how they operate. That's, that's just one analyst's guess. I don't know if Jeff wants to add anything. Um, but beyond that, I don't see any significant change. I think what's happening in the Black Sea, Jim, is long-term going to be very significant for the negotiating positions in this war. Because Ukraine has won the war politically. That's very clear, right? But at a cost of probably more than 50% of GDP. And Russia's ability to economically blockade Ukraine will prove very significant over time. Okay? So it will be a point of leverage. And it's, it's, we, should, we should raise that because even as Russia's military may suffer a defeat, this other aspect will remain long-term as a negotiating ship that they have, a point of leverage. And the you know, commercial blockade is much harder to break than the military blockade, right? Because you can, a military ship may find, may, may, may go through it. A NATO ship may, may, may try to operate in the area, yeah? But that's not the problem, Jim. The problem is uh, good luck getting any insurance company to insure a commercial vessel to go to the port of Odessa. That's the problem. One other thing that, has creeped up in um, the last couple of days, or at least on my radar, is the prospect of Russia holding referenda, both in the Donbass region and in Kherson. Anything you have to add on what that might look like or the prospects of it happening? I mean, I've, I've obviously heard rumors. There's been a lot of 
speculation that this is the way the direction Russia is going to go. Since they seized those regions, I think there has been good good debate on are they going to try to hold on to them? Are they going to try to leverage them as trading chips? What are they going to do? Increasingly, it's pretty clear that they're going to hold on to them. That much is obvious. And try to take as much of Donbass as they can. Then the question is, what is the political future of these, of these territories under Russian control? Is it annexation? Is it setting up more people's republics as kind of de facto unrecognized states that are just extensions or backed by Russia? It's probably that for the southern regions. I suspect it's more annexation for the Donbass. It's going to be the Russian name. That's, that's my hypothesis right now. I don't know if Jeff thinks differently, but uh, that's, that's my best guess at this moment. No, I, I would just add that, um, you know, there's a possibility of, for that backfiring given the trajectory of the military situation that the Ukrainians are able to take back those areas or if they're able to, during the reforms, do something that really shows that they're not valid. I mean, everybody knows they're not valid, but it, it could just kind of, you know, kind of be a, a liability in the long run if, if the Ukrainians are able to take back those places. Okay, I'm going to continue peppering with very specific questions. So, um, Mike, we were talking about the Moskva. Yeah, not maybe operationally not very important, a political victory for Ukraine. Um, but one interesting dynamic that stems from that is like the, the issue about casualties, right? And so Russia came out trying to claim that there was only one death on the ship. Um, and then since then, there's been more um, kind of investigative journalism and other things find, you know, with family members or families coming out asking where their loved ones are. Um, can you just both, I guess, you know, talk to us about uh, the role of casualties in this conflict? I mean, there is this longstanding assumption that Putin is very sensitive to body bags coming home, and that's clearly not what we're seeing in this war, right? So kind of, I don't know, it's, we're in, in the spirit of debunking um, some of these myths. How, talk to us about casualties, but well, we'll start there. Talk about the casualties piece and whether or not you think the longer this war goes on, whether or not that is a, li a political liability for Putin. I mean, I, I do think it is the longer it goes on. Um, I don't think he's as sensitive to, to you know, body bags as, as some have, have thought, especially since he has declared the special operations. And clearly they're going to try to keep the numbers down publicly. But, you know, one thing I've said is, it, you know, the Russian citizens that know the most about this conflict are the ones that are fighting it. And, you know, when they start to come home or the ones that don't come home, the larger that number gets, um, you know, the more of the more ground truth comes out in this. And so I think over the long run, if they, if, if they continue to take, I mean, I think the numbers that they've taken already are going to have an impact to some degree. But if you continue to take numbers, I mean, any political leader would have to take that into consideration uh, to include Putin. I don't know if, Mike, you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll just say this. I think we can safely put the rest of the argument that Putin is a leader deeply sensitive to casualties. People like me have been arguing that was nonsensical for a long time because there's no relationship to the contemporary history of Russia. Having uh, had Russian forces fight in Chechnya and take substantial casualties there, sending Russian forces to Ukraine in 14, 15 for a series of battles, deploying them to the Middle East. He's not that sensitive to casualties. Russian yeah, but none of those, all the Ukraine 2014, Syria 2015, not a lot of casualties. Mm, some significant casualties in the fighting in 14 and 15. That was not light. Um, I don't understand what people mean by Putin is uh, casualty sensitive. To some extent, 
the last person who would be casualty sensitive is an authoritarian leader in a personalist authoritarian system. I mean, that's just the reality of it. The Russian political leaders historically have not been casualty sensitive either. That's an argument that kind of runs counter to the last 500 years of Russian history to begin with, just to be frank. So here we are, two months into the war. Russia's had more casualties than the both Chechen wars combined. Does it look like Putin is stopping? Does it look like he's surrendering? Does it look like he's incredibly casualty sensitive? Doesn't strike me that way. Sounds like that argument was empirically wrong, and we can now stop with it. Mike, tell us what you really think. I really think that I would like zombie arguments to someday die, but it's hard. You, know? <laughs> you have to like stake them into the heart. They're like vampires. You can never, <laughs> sorry, I now have too many analogies on the board, but I'm being frank. There's certain arguments, no matter how wrong they are, you just can't, you just can't get them to, to go away. I think, it, I, I think it started with Afghanistan, where um, the body bags were coming out, so the mother's group started marching in the streets, and there became this idea that, in fact, uh, casualties are, are um, they're not smiled down upon out of the Kremlin. I think that's where this thing started. Now, all political sy systems are responsive to casualties, right? But it's the question of whether you have vital stakes or not. Ukraine's definitely a case of that, probably much more so than Afghanistan was for the Soviet Union. And it's a question of uh, political systems, regimes, leaders, and so on and so forth. Something is always very hard to convey to folks. Russia's not the Soviet Union. Putin's not, you know, Brezhnev. He's not Andropov, and so on and so forth. So there are differences. There are notable differences. Even though it looks like he's, Looks like the directions Russia going is maybe, at least on the economic side, more towards the worst days of the Soviet Union in the 1970s. But nonetheless, despite these similarities, there are important differences. And the Soviet Union itself, depending on the cause, was not casualty averse. Yeah. Okay, last question. Um, Austin's statements in his very clear articulation of uh, Washington's desire to you know, cut, shut down Russian military capabilities to, to weaken Russia, just kind of general reactions. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, I'm actually kind of refreshed by a clear articulation of policy and that I think when you look at, you know, military casualties with equipment and personnel, when you look at the long-term effects on the Russian economy, which a lot of, a lot of which we haven't started to see yet, I actually think what he said encompasses what our current policy is. It's just the fact that we said it has has some people up in arms. And I think saying that, you know, we, we don't want Russia to be in a position to do this again in, in the near future is really just a natural extension of that. And so I don't I don't see it as some fundamental change in U.S. policy. I see it as us actually just kind of coming clean and saying exactly what we're doing. I agree. I think the, the biggest criticism that he gets, though, is by saying it out loud that you're basically giving another data point for Putin, who has told his public for a very long time, see the United States wants to keep Russia weak. I mean, I don't know to what extent you yeah, Maybe so. Maybe, that. yeah, I would I would just say, like, maybe we shouldn't care about that. But, you know, Putin's narratives are something we've now, I mean, not against your point, but I'm just saying, like, you know, there's there's really not much we can do to affect Putin's narrative about, about Russia versus the West. So, I mean, there were some, there were some other complaints about the fact that this might, might you know, weaken some of the other international support for the conflict. Um, but I just, I mean, I think it's, it's, it should be pretty natural to most of the people out there that, that this is just a, you know, kind of an, kind of a, 
just an honest opinion about what our, our policy is. Yeah. Mike, final thoughts? Yeah, I thought the last NDS had laid out the fact that we were competitors and our goal was to weaken Russia like across the board long ago. So I don't really understand what the conversation is about. The Secretary of Defense just restated the immediate objectives in this war and also what has been stated as U.S. policy for years now. And I don't I, I don't understand the, the reaction to it. And the only thing that worried me was that Maybe only now we're thinking about weakening Russia. I thought this was policy for years going backwards. You know, that would have been my only concern. Is my only reaction would be, what, are we just starting to do this now? I thought this was the agreed upon strategy some years back. Anyway, I'm being a bit facetious. What I'm trying to say is there's definitely nothing new here. And it's very clear that that's been US policy in Ukraine. And that is true. And who cares what Putin says? And I think it's pretty clear, like Russia policy has been to weaken the United States and the West and to undermine institutions and everything else. So that, that's yeah, our, yeah, just to be clear, our policy to weaken Russia showed up much later to their policy to weaken us and our allies and partners. Just to be frank, we should give them credit. They were way ahead of us on that strategic competition and saying that policy. Yeah. We were pretty late, so late that the SECDEF is still announcing it. And it was a de facto the policy some years back, right? <laughs> and when he does state it, there's a reaction to it like, huh, I didn't know that we were doing that now. Like there's this kind of strange, strange response to it as though this hadn't been the policy and strategy for some years now with, with an adversary. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Totally agree. I agree. And, it, and even sanction, I mean, obviously it's why we're sending weapons to Ukraine first to help Ukraine defend itself, but second to raise the costs and weaken Russia. That's a close second objective. And obviously with uh, sanctions, but especially export controls, the sole purpose of those is to constrict and constrain the Russian military. So yes, I agree. It's all, it's all been there, I guess. And it's hard to understand what the uproar has yeah, been about. I agree. Um, as usual, this has been um, a, a great conversation. Um, thanks so much for both of you taking the time. Um, and I'm sure we'll be back at it again to give another update. But thanks as always for doing it and um, looking forward to the next one. Yeah, I, yeah. thanks for me as well. And uh, I agree with everything you're all saying about the SECDEF's uh, message. I, I'm totally in agreement too. So thank you. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having us back on the on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.